Father, we thank you for the Word of God, which you've placed in our hands. You've entrusted us with the very Word of the Almighty. Father, may we hold it with great reverence, and may we seek the truth through the Word that will strengthen us in our walk, and may we recognize that it isn't a suggestion that you give to us through your Word, but it's the command, it's the manual, it's the direction that we need in order to live this life not only pleasing to you, but successfully for ourselves. And help us, Lord, as we study, continue our study through Genesis, that this will be very instructive to us and that we will accept your blessing here this morning and seek it fervently. And Father, throughout the Sunday school this morning, we pray for your special blessing. Other adult ministries going on right now and uh, youth ministries, again, we remember those from our class who are now working with the third and fourth grade uh, children, make that a special time uh, of blessing for them. And Lord, I just thank you for all those who are able to be here today and pray you'll meet the special needs of each one this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're beginning the 47th chapter of Genesis. We're rushing on towards a conclusion here. I'd like for us this morning to read the first six verses to begin with. Genesis 47, 1 through 6. Then Joseph went in and told Pharaoh and said, My father and brothers and their flocks and their herds and all that they have have come out of the land of Canaan, and behold, they are in the land of Goshen. And he took five men among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, What is your occupation? So they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, We have come to sojourn in the land, for there is no pasture for your servants' flocks, for the famine is very severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants live in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Canaan is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Well, the scene, as we saw at the end of chapter 46, was over on the edge of the land of Goshen when Joseph made his encounter with his family moving from Canaan into Egypt. And we had that dramatic confrontation or actual uh, meeting, if you will, between Jacob and Joseph in the healing of 22 or so years of separation. A very tragic separation. Jacob, of course, believing that his son was dead and Joseph feeling there was no opportunity for him to make contact with his father for those many years. And of course, certainly while he was a slave and while he was in prison, there was no hope for him to make such contact. Joseph now, after this, this wonderful meeting and, and directing his family into the land of Goshen and showing where they could at least temporarily settle down, now returns back to Memphis. And he goes before the Pharaoh, and I, I believe he was granted, of course, immediate audience. Anytime Joseph wanted an audience with Pharaoh, it was instantly granted, probably any hour of the day and night or night. And uh, Joseph informed Pharaoh that his family was here. Now, Pharaoh was well aware of the fact the family was coming. It had told Joseph to bring his family. Uh, now the announcement comes, my family is here. And I think it's very interesting as we looked at that uh, first verse, how much 
information is really packed in a few words there uh, by way of uh, implication as well as direct statement. For example, he says, my father and my brothers, meaning, of course, the whole clan, because that implied the wives and the children and the grandchildren, all of these were included in this little statement, with their flocks and their herds. I mean, these people are shepherds. These, these people are livestock individuals. They've been rather semi-nomadic. And the, the flocks are huge. And so Pharaoh could have visions of rather large flocks of goats and, and sheep and donkeys and cattle and so forth. All that they have, they've moved to, to, to Egypt, lock, stock, and barrel. Now, Egypt had invited them to do that. I mean, Pharaoh had invited them to do that. And so they have. They've moved and they are at least temporarily settled down there in the land of Goshen. They've come out of Canaan. Now the word Canaan meant different things to different pharaohs. Some, to some pharaohs, Canaan meant very little. Oh yeah, it's that land on the border with which we have relative little contact. To other pharaohs, it was a land that was controlled by Pharaoh, by, by Egypt. There were times when Egypt was an empire, particularly in the Middle Kingdom, which we're talking about now, and later on in the New Kingdom. In the New Kingdom, Egyptian empire stretched all the way to the Euphrates River and deep into what is today the modern country of Sudan. That was when Egypt was at its greatest territorially, but that would be several hundred years later and would be the time of the Exodus, actually. And, and then to other pharaohs, the land of Canaan was a pain in the neck because these nomadic raiders would come out of the desert of southern Canaan and raid into the border of Egypt and create havoc. So, you know, the, the land of Canaan was meaningful. So this reference certainly impacted Pharaoh. They are in Goshen, he said, which, of course, is where Pharaoh originally said they could migrate. And they had penetrated Egypt very uh, modestly. Remember, we noted that Goshen is way over in the northeast corner of Egypt, up on the edge of the delta, and not really all that far from Canaan, particularly the part of Canaan uh, where Jacob and his family were living, down in southern Canaan, to Hebron. And so they're on the border. They're not deep into the country. They're, they aren't going to cause too much agitation. They're not uh, an irritant deep within the country. And, and they're in an open land. And so... This was, I think, significant for Joseph to remind Pharaoh. The indication was that they were there in Goshen awaiting Pharaoh's pleasure. What, what really do you want us to do? Where do you want us to live? Now, they didn't want to presume upon Pharaoh. They didn't want Pharaoh to feel like, hey, we're just moving in and taking over here simply because Joseph's prime minister and we'll do whatever we want. No, they wanted to be very, very careful. But where they were located was very logical because of its proximity to the land from which they came, because it was on the perimeter of, of, the, of Egypt and they weren't going to cause as much difficulty, and, and because it was a good land for livestock, as best land as there was at this time anyway, in the midst of a great drought. Pharaoh had given to Joseph great authority. The implication was that there was no greater in all of Egypt than Joseph save Pharaoh himself, and that in fact, Pharaoh had given to Joseph powers that were actually regal. And yet, in this situation, Joseph knew that he could not give a significant portion of Egypt away to foreigners without Pharaoh's explicit stamp of approval. And so, Joseph comes to receive that. 
He's certain Pharaoh will give it. I mean, we know that he was, was certain Pharaoh would give it because back in the 45th chapter, we read when Joseph wrote to his father, gave, sent word through his brothers back to his father, come to me, come and, and, and live in the land and you can live in Goshen. So Joseph had basically already promised Goshen to his family. So he was pretty well convinced that Pharaoh would grant whatever it was he asked for. But for the sake of Pharaoh's honor, so that Pharaoh would not feel that Joseph is uh, trying to supplant him in any way, and for the sake of those in the land of Egypt who were high in government, who might be jo uh, jealous of Joseph, he followed all the proper lines of protocol. He did everything as he ought to do, went through all the formalities, so no one could point the finger and say that Joseph was trying to usurp Pharaoh's power or was circumventing Pharaoh's will. I think it's very important for us to note that although we may be children of God, it's still important that we be people who follow the laws of the land, people who follow the customs of the land, people who respect others in high authority, be they Christian or not, and live in a manner that is appropriate and right, even as Christ did as he walked here on the earth. And so Joseph is an example of that to us. In spite of his great power and position, he did not uh, just assume on that power and feel that he could move ahead as he so chose. We're told in the passage that Joseph brought five of his brothers to this audience with Pharaoh. Certainly this was in part to satisfy Pharaoh's curiosity. <laughs> what do your brothers look like? Uh, and also to convince him of the reality of the situation. We have moved and we are here. Joseph brought five brothers. Which five? Scripture doesn't say. Why five? <laughs> doesn't say that either. You know, he, he just chose five by his own uh, decision. And which five? Well, I, I personally feel he probably would have chosen Benjamin as one. And I kind of think he would have chosen Judah as another. And the other three, well, maybe, I don't know what he did, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, whatever it was. He chose five brothers to represent the family before Pharaoh. No, I don't think it was eeny, meeny, miny, mo at all. <laughs> he understood the character of his brothers, and I think he brought those that he felt would best represent the family before Pharaoh. Well, Pharaoh asked the expected questions. Remember I mentioned to you, well, the passage in chapter 46 mentioned that Joseph had said to his brothers and to his father, this is what Pharaoh's going to ask and this is how you should reply. And that's exactly what happens. Pharaoh says, well, what is your occupation? And so they announce that they are shepherds and this has been the family tradition for eons. This is the implication here. And this is important for Pharaoh to know that this is their way of life. This is what they have known for, for all the ex generations of this family. So you can't just say, oh, well, forget herding and come over here and become silversmiths or something else. Uh, but uh, that this would be, therefore, important that they be put in the land where they could continue to follow the occupation of their ancestors. But they also made it, import, uh, made it uh, clear to Pharaoh we're just sojourning in the land. We're not planning to move here and make, take over this land and make it ours. We're just sojourning here. We're just here for a period of time. Implication being, of course, until the drought is over, and then we'll move back 
to the land from which we came. And I think that was really in the minds of the brothers. I don't think they had any plan to just stay on in Egypt. They had grown up in Canaan. This was their land. And for them to, to live in Egypt was foreign. And I think they hoped that as soon as the drought was over, they could move back to southern Canaan. But you and I know they will not do that. They will be in the land of Egypt for over 400 years. But that's really hard to, to fathom, you know. Columbus sailed in 1492 to discover the Americas. <laughs> you know, that's only a little over 500 years ago. I mean, Jamestown was founded in 1607, and we haven't even come to the 400th anniversary of that yet. And we think of that almost like it was, you know, the Dark Ages or something so long ago. And so to think they're going to be in the land for more than 400 years, uh, hard, hard to conceive. Of course, they didn't know that, so they didn't have to worry about it. <laughs> oh, no, 400 years. I'm going to be an old man by then. <laughs> right. The brothers then petitioned Pharaoh for permission to live in Canaan. We would like to, uh, I mean, in Goshen, they already living in Canaan. They didn't need to do that. And Pharaoh replies in a very interesting way. He basically rolls out the red carpet. He says to Joseph, put your family wherever you like. Any place in Egypt you choose, they may have. They may live anywhere in the land. But since they have chosen Goshen, let them stay in Goshen. Of course, Goshen was one of the best parts of the land, at least as far as raising livestock was concerned. Now, there were many other parts of the land which were better for other things. If you wanted to grow wheat, for example, the delta wasn't as good as in the heart of the valley itself. And if you wanted to do trade in those kinds of things, obviously living in a city would be more important, or near a city at least, than living out in the, uh, in, in the you know, open spaces of the, of the delta. The whole land is at your disposal. And why does Pharaoh have a heart like that? He is a pagan. He has a heart like that, though, because God can touch pagan hearts. God can touch pagan hearts to do whatever God chooses to do. And of course, our great prayer is that God will touch pagan hearts, that they will stop being pagans and come to know the Lord. And certainly that is the prayer for, that we have for many that we are in contact with day by day. I think Pharaoh appreciated the choice of location, knowing that if the Hebrews lived here in the, the delta, way over in the northeast part of the land, that there would be less friction than if they lived elsewhere, if they penetrated more deeply into the land where they were surrounded by Egyptians. And, and the reason we know that could be friction is, if you remember back in verse 34 of the previous chapter, it tells us at the end of the chapter that you may live in the land of Goshen for every shepherd is loathsome to the Egyptians. And, and we talked a little bit about that last time. And so it was better they not be in a place where they would rub shoulders with a lot of Egyptians because Egyptians considered shepherds and herdsmen at the very bottom of the social order. And, and we talked about the reasons why that was true last time. And if you weren't here... Unexpectedly, Pharaoh made a request. He said to Joseph, if any of your brothers are good administrators, let me know, and I'll put them in charge of the royal herds. Now, the Egyptians weren't big on raising sheep, but the Egyptians did raise a lot of cattle. The sheep was not a particularly important animal to the Egyptians. You know, if you live in Egypt, you don't need a whole lot of wool. It's one warm place. 
Uh, in fact, uh, they ran around mostly in linen, uh, very light uh, material, almost transparent material, at least as far as we can tell from the wall paintings that have survived and the various uh, sculptures which seem to indicate that uh, at least the upper levels of society uh, were dressed in this manner. There is evidence that the royal herds and the herds that were dedicated to the sun god were kept in the delta, very possibly in or near the land of Goshen. Now, if you look through um, Egyptian uh, cosmology, you'll discover that one of the gods they worshipped was the bull god Apis. Apis was worshipped in Memphis and throughout the, the Delta area. And you see the, the uh, image of the bull represented in many, many different places in Lower Egypt. Carved in stone and painted on the walls of the tombs, you see the bull symbol over and over again. He was considered to be the manifestation of Ta, P-T-A-H, who was one of the chief gods of the, southern, of the northern part of Egypt. In fact, I think I noted this back when we talked a little bit about Egyptian religion, that uh, as you follow through the theogony of, uh, of Egypt, you discover that depended on what time you were talking about as to what they believed about the different gods. And it kind of evolved through time. And sometimes Ta was considered to be the, the chief or the father of all the gods. Sometimes he was confused with Ray, the sun god. Sometimes he is the sun god. It, it really can be confusing. And the bull, though, was the symbol of fertility and virility within the Egyptian society, and, and not their society alone. This was common throughout really much of the Mediterranean basin and particularly in the Mesopotamian culture also and the Phoenician culture and the Philistine culture and some of the others. The bull was considered to be this god of fertility and he was highly honored. The bull was highly honored in Egypt. So it could be that Pharaoh intended for one of the brothers to superintend not only the royal herd but also these herds of sacred bulls, holy cows, or whatever you want to call them, that dwelt in the delta. Now, it could be that, Joseph, that Pharaoh assumed that if Joseph was such a, a brilliant administrator, a man of forethought uh, thought and, and ability, that probably many of his brothers were also. It probably was a family trait. And therefore, he, he hoped that certain other brothers could be used in administrative capacity also. I think for us, though, we have the ability of hindsight in looking through the pages of Scripture, and we can tell by looking at this that Joseph's abilities may have been there. Certainly he had native talent, uh, that he had uh, inborn abilities, but it was God who made those abilities effective. It was God who gave him the perception that he needed, the discernment that would enable him to be the man that he was and the administrator that he was, and I think that's the greatest thing. When you have a particular talent and you give it to God and God blesses it, it, it makes it far more valuable and useful and accurate than it would be to be used, of course, without God's blessing. So it was with Joseph. Scripture does not say whether Joseph said, yeah, uh, 
you know, this one here, this one here. Um, you know, Issachar would be a great bull herder or whatever. He doesn't say. And whether any of them ever were employed that way, the scripture doesn't say. But at least this request was made. It is very important to notice the significance of explicit obedience to God. Joseph was explicitly obedient to God. Not just generically obedient, but specifically obedient. And Jacob was specifically obedient. God had said, go to Egypt. And he went to Egypt. It was not in his nature to want to go to Egypt. There was a kind of a wall of resistance there because he knew that his grandfather had gotten in trouble going down into Egypt. But he went because God said to go. In addition, the humbling and the repentance of the ten brothers that we've already studied created an attitude of submission to God. And again, I, I think I, we can't overemphasize that. The key is submission. We've got to be in submission to God because the greatest barrier between our hearts and God is our arrogance. It is our will. It is our selfishness. It, it, it is the selfness of our being. We want to be who we're going to be, and we want to do what we want to do, and we're going to nobody tell us what to do. And we don't understand that when we submit to God, the best is going to happen because He is all love, and He wants the very best for us. We have to kind of get this image out of our minds that God's a big disciplinarian up there with a big stick, and all He likes to do is whack people when they walk out of line. It's not how He is. He's a God of justice, yes. And how, how we long sometimes for justice in this land and in this world. But He's a God who wants what's best for every single individual. And that's His purpose and that's His plan. And that's why He gave us the Word. Not to be a cosmic killjoy, as one has said, but to be one who enables us to be all that He has made us to be and to have the joy and the deep inner sense of peace of knowing that we're not only successful in this world, but we have success in the eyes of God Himself, granted by Him. And that's got to be Joseph's greatest joy, to know that not only he has succeeded in the eyes of the world, but he is a success in God's eyes because God has made him a success. And last week we noted that too. He gave God the glory for that. He acknowledged that his success was from God. And that's the key for us all. As soon as we start taking our success unto ourselves, that's when we get into big trouble. We've got to acknowledge that it is from God. It's empowered by God. And that doesn't diminish us in any way. <laughs> it, it's to our blessing. And that's, of course, who Satan is. You know, Satan is the big me, the big self, the big one who wants to be himself glorified and honored. And he has no love. He doesn't even know the meaning of the word love. He's all hate and destruction and evil and vileness. And certainly we don't want to be his ally. And certainly none of these brothers did either. And that's why they finally, as God showed them themselves in the mirror, Sometimes it's really ugly to look at ourselves in the mirror as to what we really are in our flesh. I don't mean our physical bodies, but as we see what kind of people we really are, we're, you know, it can turn us off. But then we see what Christ has done for us. 
and hopefully joy and peace comes in and we can feel good about who we are because if we're walking with him, he's shaping us into the person he wants us to be and using us effectively. We may not see that right now. We may not see, I mean, we may not be walking down the street and laying hands on somebody and they rise up out of their sick bed uh, right away. We may not be seeing somebody saved every time we turn around and mention the word Jesus. But, but God is touching lives through us if we're walking in obedience, and we may not see it at the moment. But the fruit is there because it's his responsibility, and he will bring it about. I, I think that this happening, this blessing of God on the lives of these ten brothers, Joseph also, Benjamin also, and then his father and the whole family, was at least a partial fulfillment of that promise that God had made to Abraham way back in the 12th chapter of Genesis. That is recorded in the 12th chapter of Genesis. Certainly a promise made probably 300 years or close to that before this particular time, two to 300 years. Genesis 12, verse 1, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, I, I think that was a very difficult concept for Abraham to get a hold of. In me, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I mean, he had no concept, of course, at that time, how many families there were in the earth, how big the earth was, how widely scattered the human race was. But certainly he knew it was far beyond the borders of his little world. So how could it be that this would happen? He didn't know, but he walked in faith. And, and Isaac picked up that same promise and moved with it, and now it is Jacob who has inherited this covenant made with his grandfather Abraham. Abraham had faithfully taught Isaac, and Isaac had faithfully taught Jacob, and Jacob had taught his sons, but not all of his sons heard. Joseph heard. The others are now hearing once God had gotten a hold of their hearts. Now, that's the hard part, getting the attention of someone, isn't it? It's kind of like when you're talking with your, your child, when your child is small. You, you, sometimes you feel like you're talking until you're, what, blue in the face, right? And, and it doesn't seem like everything, anything gets through. It, it, but if you can get your child's attention, <coughs> undivided attention, then sometimes you can get through. Well, God got through because he got the undivided attention of these ten brothers. And now they're beginning to understand something of what the covenant meant. That through them the covenant is going to be operative. How they didn't know, especially in the land of Egypt. Except, of course, being in Egypt now, there were other families of the world who could be blessed. Of course, there were in Canaan also. Despite their failures, and there were many failures, we've looked at the failures of Abraham, the failures of Isaac, the failures of Jacob, the failures of Judah. But in spite of those failures, there was a general course of obedience. Their lives were basically lives of obedience to God. And I, I, I have to say that I, I trust that's true for each of us, that our lives are generally in the, in the direction of obedience, and I hope more specifically even than generally. But certainly all of us have to admit that day by day there are times when we stray from that obedience, when we 
submit to the flesh. And when our selfness rises up and, and resists doing something we know God wants us to do. But God is there to take us through that and to keep us on that general path of obedience. I've just been made to wonder a lot lately when you think about even the best of us, the finest example of a Christian in this world today, has so much within him or her that seems to be resistant to God and uh, you know, yielding to the flesh. You're just, just glad God is who He is. And I'm glad I'm not God. And I'm glad you're not. <laughs> because I know if I were God with my attitude, it would, it would be tough on the human race. <laughs> Probably the human race wouldn't be here, you know. But that's some of what we don't fathom about God. But we just believe it. And I trust our thankful. And, and he seeks slowly but surely to mold us. God rewards obedience both physically and spiritually. I'd like for us to turn to Psalm 103, verse 15. Psalm 103, verse 15. This passage is, it tells it like it is and yet gives us great hope. As for man, his days are like grass. As the flower of the field, so he flourishes. When the pa wind passes over it, it is no more. And its place acknowledges it no longer. I mean, when you and I pass off the scene, there's a small little vacuum here and there. But as the system of the world goes, they don't know you're gone. The system doesn't know you're gone. I, I've mentioned this before. As you study history, especially the further back you go in history, the fewer people you know anything about. One of the reasons history focuses so much on kings and queens and, and rulers is they're about the only people we know anything about. The only people about which record was made in terms of written records that spell out anything. And, and you think of the, the average peon, you know, John Doe clodhopper out there. Who knows about them? I mean, their, their lives were spent here. They filled a little space in time. But they're gone as far as the record of history is concerned. God alone knows about them. So life is like that, really. It's here, it's gone. And the older you get, the quicker it seems to go, right? Whoosh. It's almost the end of October. I'm just now getting used to writing 1994 on my checks, <laughs> you know. But verse 17 changes the whole complexion. But the loving kindness of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear Him. Suddenly, this, this uh, momentary life takes on a new meaning. It may be here and gone tomorrow as far as this world is concerned, but in God it's everlasting to everlasting to those who fear Him and His righteousness to children's children, to those who keep His covenant and remember His precepts to do them. Sometimes we forget the Scripture which tells us that Jesus reworded that last line later on in the Gospels when He said, those who love Me, those who are My disciples, are those who obey Me. Those who obey My Word. To do His precepts. Again, that doesn't mean we never goof up. It doesn't mean we never fail to do something God has told us to do, that we never fail 
to obey the word. Uh, we do all the time fail. And as you read through the scripture, that's why it's a mirror. As you read through the scriptures and you think, suddenly you're smitten. Oh, Lord, I'm not obedient in this area. And I don't care how long you've been walking with the Lord and how wonderfully you've been walking with the Lord. If you read through this book and you don't find a place where God says, this is something I need you to change in your life, then, then, then you're blind. <laughs> you don't really see because the scripture is constantly bringing to light those things in our lives that need to be changed. But that change is not going to be perfected in this life. We're, we're in the process of maturing, but not until we cross Chile, Jordan, will the real perfection come. Verse 7 of Genesis 47. Genesis 47, 7. Then Joseph brought his father Jacob and presented him to Pharaoh. And, Fa and Joseph and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many years have you lived? So Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my sojourning are 130. Few and unpleasant have been the years of my life, nor have they attained the years that my fathers lived during the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out from his presence. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt, in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had ordered. And Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food, according to their little ones. I think there's probably a little time gap there. It's possible that, that Joseph brought his brothers in, had a little conversation, and then brought his father's in, father in. But, but I, I think it was a different audience. I, I don't think Joseph wanted the audience with Pharaoh watered down by having his brothers there and, and then Jacob. I think he wanted the focus to be on his father. And so I think a few days later, he brought his father, Jacob, to present him before Pharaoh. And the encounter is very interesting because it helps us to understand what jo Jacob thought about his position in life and what Jacob thought his life meant. When Joseph utter, ushered in his aged father, what was Pharaoh's reaction? I, I think it's very possible that Pharaoh arose from his throne because here is an aged cheek, kind of a tribal chieftain or a clan chieftain. And even though Pharaoh is the Pharaoh of a great land, I, I think he had great respect for age because it's often equated with wisdom. And he certainly honored Joseph and thought Joseph is such a great man, his father must also be a great man. And so when Jacob was brought into his presence, I think in deference to him that Pharaoh rose from his throne and, and treated Jacob as if Jacob were his own father. Now Pharaoh's father was by definition dead. Pharaoh wouldn't be Pharaoh if his father was still alive probably because his father would have most likely been the previous Pharaoh. And, and so I, I think possibly subconsciously he kind of uh, related to, to Jacob as if he were a kind of a substitute father, maybe for Pharaoh himself. And in response, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. We're not told what the content of that blessing was, but it was, of course, a greeting. But it was also an invoking of Yahweh's special touch upon the life of this man and certainly on the position of Pharaoh in the land. 
specific blessing. You know, we can pray, and we're commanded to pray for those in authority over us. And we can pray for God's blessing. I don't think we have to be fearful of that. We can pray for God's blessing upon a president or a governor or, or whatever the person is in authority, knowing that, that God knows what that ought to mean and what that should uh, reflect. And uh, so this is what Jacob does for Pharaoh. Part of the purpose of God calling a chosen people into existence in the first place was that they would witness of his reality to a lost world. And that has been Joseph's purpose. And, and Jacob, in blessing Pharaoh in the name of Yahweh, was reinforcing the, the, uh, the witness that Joseph had given there for many years now. And sometimes a second voice, a second opinion coming in relative to something of, of this significance makes a big difference. We have no idea. Scripture does not say, and certainly historical record does not say, what the ultimate impact of Joseph and Jacob were upon Pharaoh or upon the land of Egypt at that moment at all. We, we don't know how many Egyptians maybe were touched by the God of the Hebrews. I, I can hardly believe that Joseph in his obedience and in his witness and his giving praise to God was not a person that God used to touch the lives of many Egyptians. I believe it's so. Not only his wife, but I think others. How was Pharaoh touched? Well, we don't know. There just is no record. We just have to trust in the faithfulness of God. It's all part of his plan, and he brings about his purpose in his time. I think it's further interesting to note that all, although Pharaoh was certainly the more wealthy and the more powerful of these two men as they stood there, Jacob and Pharaoh, face to face, as they stood there, Pharaoh was the more powerful, Pharaoh was the more wealthy, but jo Jacob was the greater man. I'd like to turn back to Hebrews chapter 7, to just remind us of an event that transpired earlier in the record of Genesis, which is reflected here in Hebrews, that is a parallel. Hebrews 7, verse 4. Now, and, and this is, of course, the writer of the Hebrews talking about Abraham's encounter with Melchizedek. Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. Now to us looking at it from the outside, well, let's, let's say someone looking at it from the outside who's not a Christian, they're going to say, big deal, who's Abraham? You know, just an old clan chief from way back when. But we know from the record of Scripture, Abraham was a truly great man. One of the greatest men in all of history, bar none, was Abraham. And yet, the patriarch gave a tenth of the cho choicest spoils to Melchizedek. And those indeed of the sons of Levi who received the priest's office have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although they are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham, and bless the one who had the promises. I mean, Abraham was the one who was the inheritor of the, of the covenant. 
He was the inheritor of the covenant. He was the inheritor of the covenant whereby God had said, through your descendants, all the tribes of the world would be blessed. And yet, we read here that the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. By parallel, Pharaoh is the lesser blessed by the greater. He may have been the ruler of, a, of the mightiest land of that part of the world in that day, but Jacob was the greater man. And therefore, he blessed Pharaoh. Through Pharaoh, God would bless Jacob. But it wouldn't be, Jake, it wouldn't be Pharaoh's blessing. It'd be God's blessing through Pharaoh, giving them the land in which to live. But Pharaoh had no capacity to bless because he was not God's man. So he could bless no one, but Jacob could because he was God's instrument of blessing. And through him, Pharaoh and the land of Egypt were blessed. Pharaoh was obviously impressed by Jacob's great age. You know, Jacob probably had all this white hair and a white beard, you know. And he came in there looking like uh, Father Time himself. But what is interesting is that the information we do have about the reigns of kings in this particular time, of the pharaohs at this particular time, does not indicate any unusual longevity. As best as we can trust the surviving records of the Middle Kingdom kings, the, the typical reign ran from 20 to 40 years. In fact, it's, it's possible in, in trying to plug Joseph and Jacob into the Egyptian chronology. Now, most uh, biblical historians put uh, them in around the 12th dynasty of pharaohs, which would be probably about the 19th century BC. And two of the pharaohs who lived at that time, whose names were Sen-Usart I and Sen-Usart II, ruled 19 years and 38 years respectfully, respectively. Now, was this Pharaoh one of those two? Well, we don't know. But to rule 10, 20, 30, 40 years was about it for the Pharaohs. And so they probably died off at, uh, well, the studies they've made of digging up some of the mummies from, the ancient, from ancient Egypt, they discover that a lot of those people died very, very young, 30s and 40s. So as he looked at a man who was 130, you know, it boggled his mind like it would you and me. Somebody walked in this room and said he was 130 and there was some way to, to actually believe him that he was really 130. We would really stand in awe of such a person, I would think. But particularly this would be true for a man who dwelt in a society where probably the average lifespan was, was 40 to 50, you know, at best. So he was very much interested in finding out by, from Jacob what he had to say by way of wisdom relative to his great years. And Jacob would tell him that I'm 130. Jacob would go on to live to be 147. <laughs> but he had some very interesting things to say here. And can't seem to keep the clock from moving on, but we, uh, I've got several points I want to point out about what Jacob's response was and what it really means, not only to him and meant to him, but what it means to us. 
So I think I'll have to wait till next Sunday to do that. But his response is very insightful and I think relates directly to us in what our attitude is or maybe ought to be or probably will be if it isn't yet uh, relative to life. But we'll look at that next week.